and I think it's more where you take your inf inspiration from because I take my inspiration from art and comedy and theatre and film and so they all inspire the so I make kind of spectacles comedy spectacles on a budget Welcome to the podcast that celebrates the contribution of diverse people to British stand-up comedy past and present. I'm Sophie Quirk. And I'm Ollie Double. Who have we got on the podcast today, Sophie? Today we're talking to the fabulous Elf Lyons, who we interviewed in July 2022 via Zoom. And actually we caught her in the midst of a really busy day's work. She was straight from a rehearsal and in a cafe. And this was a delightfully kind of intertextual discussion. She talks about the methods of lots of other theatre practitioners, notably the French pedagogue Gaulier, um, and also sort of touches on other concepts like the French psychoanalyst Jack Lacan's idea of the symbolic, the real and the imaginary. But what's wonderful about the way Elf talks about these things is that she applies them to her own kind of experimental genre bending style in a really kind of uh, down to earth way. There are some content warnings for this episode. There is a mention of rape, there is a mention of sexual abuse, and also a routine that references the sexualization of children. So if those are parts that you would like to skip over, please have a look in the show notes where we've put the time codes for those bits of the podcast and how far forward you need to skip if you don't want to listen to those. Also, just to pick up on something you said there, if people don't believe that this conversation took place with Elf in a cafe... Oh, they soon will. They definitely will. I mean, for a start, the Zoom sound quality uh, will, will be evident. But secondly, even through that sound quality, <laughs> you will hear the sound of cutlery. It's brilliant. Over to Elf. I am a comedian by trade. I started my first gig was on the 16th of October 2008. That was the first ever comedy gig I did, and I lasted about two minutes on stage. It was downstairs at the King's Head. I didn't become professional. I didn't get signed by management until I was 24. And that was when I suddenly started making my full innings from comedy. And so that was, yeah, eight years ago, which is bonkers. And... I trained as a teacher during lockdown, so I now also add that onto my qualifications. You've been performing stand-up continuously since you started, would you say? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, when I was at university and doing my master's, so I did a BA at Bristol and then an MA, um, I was trying to, I was working out what I was going to do. So I would say I did very, I did gigs at uni, but I didn't do it to the way that some students at university religiously do gigs it was something I wanted to do but it was more like a hobby alongside other things brilliant and um what would you do? I mean do you have the some stand-ups do a kind of origin story where you kind of say this is how I started and why I started I you know what it's one of those funny things because you know that the the science behind the more you tell a story the more you rewrite the memory and so <laughs> I felt I feel like I was explaining this to a friend the other day how there are some comedy stories that I've told so many times on stage which I know were exaggerations or mixes of two actual things that happened together but I honestly can't tell you what the original I can't like parts of my memory have genuinely been rewritten 
yeah even so, though like there are some stories like i am certain happened and my mum's like that never happened you just told that on stage and it went well and you've told that continuously since but i am certain that because i can see it in my head in a way it's really like implant you've implanted your own memories but regarding origin story i remember like always liking comedy when I was a teenager but I remember the first time I said I wanted to be a comedian was on a summer course a summer theatre school in London when I was about 16 and I just really fancied a boy in the group and we all had to go around and say what we wanted to be and every person all the girls were obviously saying actress actress and I wanted to sound cool so I said comedian and then he came up to me and was like I like Ezzy Izzard and then we became friends and then actually years later did go out so well done me (laughs) 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 we want to talk about what's particular to your comedy really and so I wanted to start by this this section by asking you what you think makes your work distinctive in terms of you know things you talk about on stage the type of material you do your performance style and so on I was actually thinking about this yesterday because I was re-editing my website and Lynn Gardner had said what makes my work great is that it's hard to put it into distinctive boxes whether it's theatre comedy live art which I think is a strength as opposed to I think there's that difficulty, especially in the the UK comedy scene, or we want to put people in boxes immediately, which is why you very much see the immediate rule of, as a comic, when you go on stage, you have to let the audience know immediately what class you are, whether you're gay or straight, who you you are, and make it clear to the audience that you know what you are, because you need to save time, because otherwise the audience are going to be thinking about it there's this habit you have to immediately tell the audience so I always had to come on stage and make it really clear I know I'm posh I'm very aware so the audience goes she knows we don't need to criticize her for it now she's already made it aware we can relax we can listen to what she's going to say so it can make me make it slightly harder when you're hard to put in boxes but I think for me it's that enjoyment of trying to use all the senses that's how I think about with my work trying to make it multi-sensory so it's not just verbal um it's physical it's kinetic and it makes it sound a bit wanky but that's sort of how i like to imagine it and i think it's more where you take your inspiration from because i take my inspiration from art and comedy and theater and film and so they all inspire the so i make kind of spectacles comedy spectacles on a budget (laughs) that is putting it so brilliantly comedy spectacles on a budget yeah yeah basically Absolutely. I mean, one of the things, so you, I think you trained, at, uh, you did some Gollier training, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So can you just tell us a bit about that? How did it benefit you? And um, well, yeah, let's start with that. How did, you know, what was, what, what did you get from that? I got, I mean, I, I owe so much to that school, so much. And it's really fascinating, actually, the perception of it in the UK or, you know, the way people in the UK sort of also criticise people who went to Gollier, which I always think is really funny. You never punch up at how elitist, you know, theatre schools are in the UK or like the Oxbridge obsession in the comedy scene. But everyone seems to punch down on quite a small independent theatre school in France, which, yeah, might sound a bit wanky to a lot of people, but has open access to all. 
you don't need to audition to go there, which I think people sort of, and it's more affordable than most places, but I went there, I did everything except clowning. So I studied everything except clown, which I think people are always surprised by. So all my clowning doesn't come from Golia at all. I have no idea about how Golia teaches clown. I did Greek theatre, I did Neutral Mask, I did Moliere and Chekhov and Shakespeare and Buffon, which, and characters. Characters and Buffon were the two things that I was very good at. But I think the amazing thing about Golia was you had movement training from like 11 till 1. You had voice training from like 1 till 2. And then you had two and a half hours with Philippe. And then you had the space to use for rehearsal space. So you're, and that was every day. And you'd be given a challenge on the Monday to show on Friday at Autocore. And it just created in you this habit of routinely creating and developing new work all the time and accepting if something didn't work, you throw it away. So it created this really lovely, I think quite healthy attitude to how to generate material and how to watch other people. That's really interesting. I mean, particularly because one of the things that I was going to ask you about it was the idea of the, you know, how accessible is Gollier to, you know, to, to people across the comedy circuit. But actually what you've argued very articulately is that it is quite accessible because it's comparatively cheap compared with, say, drama school. The downside to it, obviously, and I think this is an issue with all schools, if you had a physical um, limitation, I don't always, um, you know, if, because the vet, you know, you're, one of the main theatre spaces is upstairs. So there would be a limitation there. But at the same time, I fully believe Philippe would adapt for a student who had, there was a student who was deaf in the year above me. And they always met, he had to wear a microphone and connect it to her hearing aids. Like they did do what they could, him and Michiko. But obviously it's the only, it's only two of them. It's not a funded school. So I, I would find it, I wonder, anyone who had any particular physical issues how it would sort of adapt so that's what but then at the same time I think that's an issue with almost all theatre schools and access but actually everyone loads of people didn't speak the same language and there were some students who didn't actually speak French or didn't speak English which he teaches in and they were still able to be a part of the lessons there was no limitation the only time a student would be asked to leave or not participate was if Philippe thought there was something, if there was something problematic mental health wise, or if he thought the student actually couldn't cope with the teaching, because he makes it very clear, I mean, that's sort of how it's done. And he doesn't hide that. It's that boss clown persona thing, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, that's it. It's a character. Yeah. It's funny, the amount of people I meet, especially men, who, when you talk about Philippe, they're like, I wouldn't have anyone talk to me like that. If he spoke to me, I'd punch him in the face. And you're like, you wouldn't. You literally wouldn't. Because the moment you get there, you just want him to like you. And you realise it's a character. And all your and he will see right through you. Or if you give that vibe, he'll just kick you out of the school. I mean, he's also very adaptable. Like, there's pro there are areas that clearly, when we went, he would sometimes use language like, would you want to... Would you want to eat caramel with her? Would you want to rape her? And we had to stop him and be like, Philippe, you can't use that word. And we really had to explain. And I think, again, it was a translation. It was a timing thing. But he does adapt. 
I think his, and I think he softened obviously with age considerably, but he was very open to being challenged about things that genuinely, in my opinion, mattered. Not him going, oh, would we wish she was on Malaysian Airlines flight? You know, which is one that, you know, he wouldn't like it if you challenged him on that, but on actual issues that were predominant in the space. And he was very up for being challenged and open, you know, to new ideas. Can I have a cup of coffee? Yeah, so that, that leads on nicely, actually, of something that we both notice in your work. And I have to say, I'm always in awe of it. It's your willingness to really charge into things that are tremendously challenging. So um, that's just, you know, just as, as performers, we would think we're technically really you know things that people would say just just don't so um, for yeah. example swan which you performed in what i think you described as french sort of and um i've, I've seen you perform on ice at um, alexandra palace um and they like, have show like chiff chaff where um but there's a lot going on in that show but one of the things that's happening is that you're actually talking about really complicated economic concepts that i i imagine your audience have heard of but don't really know what they are in all cases. So I just wanted to ask you about that really, like um, where does that embrace of challenge come from? I think there's something really interesting about failure. And for me, it has to be challenging for you as an artist. There's something fun about the challenge. Like when you're little, you like doing, getting back up and trying something again. And it's, I don't, I like sincerity and I like authenticity in shows. I don't like it when people are pretending. I find that really, really, so it has, it has, there has to be an element of it genuinely being something new for me every time. And also, I don't think audiences come to see a performer based on what the show's actually about. I think people go to see a show because of the person. So the content of the show is purely, I think, for the performer to inspire them which is why i like to pick things that i think are fat, like interesting to me and engaging and also that keep it away from it being totally autobiographical and self like self-praising like my shows are obviously very me centered because it's just me doing it but like we're like swan's really personal but at the same time you also it's not really i don't talk about anything from my childhood i'm just trying to do Swan Lake and Chiff Chaff, you know about my relationship with my dad, but it's mainly me trying to teach you about economics that you learn about that. So it's about through something else you get to know who the person is rather than them just telling you about the divorce or the heartbreak or their dog. Yeah, I mean, that's so interesting because on the surface of it, you, I, um, you know, I don't agree with what I'm about to say, but on the surface of it, you might look at your work and say that is a lot of um, costume and use of voices and things that amount to character that, that um, you know, there's signifiers there that it's not about you performing your authentic self. But actually, I, I would see what you meant if you said this, this is the best way of getting authentically to something that's true to me. Yeah. So, yeah, he said a bit more about about that, that, that apparent contradiction. I think it's, you know, that like. I can't remember who it was, you know, about the symbolic, the real and the imaginary. There's those different f forms and like the real 
like the moment you say I'm in the real world, you're actually in the Im imaginary because you're in the world of interpreting symbols. But when you're in the real, it's actually when you're out of what reality is, you're actually fully immersed in play. You're in what people would define to be the imaginary, but because of that, you're actually in the real. I can't remember who talked about it, but it's really interesting in regards to play and teaching, and especially in drama with what you're trying to teach children. So like teacher in role through teach acting in character and getting the kids to commit to being in character they're actually in the world of the real they're really engaging with the world around them in a very authentic genuine way they're not interpreting signals in a sort of preordained manner so i don't know for me you see the most honest version of me and my relationship with an audience when i'm fully immersed in the play and the imaginary and the doing the characters you really get to see who i am i think it's interesting actually because um Grotowski, the polish theater maker who did you know mm -hmm. towards poor theater had this thing apparently about that the, the best time to hear somebody singing a song is when they don't quite know it and they're struggling to get the tune and struggling to get the words yeah and and i really kind of get that idea uh, it's like um Charles M. Schultz, who did the Peanuts cartoon, said that his best cartoons were the rough sketches he did at the beginning of the day. They look nothing like as beautiful and clean as the final Peanuts strips. But there's something in there, there's an energy in there that feels more authentic. Yeah, I think it's interesting, all the previews for my new show, they've all been totally different because I don't record my shows. I don't record, I don't write literally. I, I, it's very bad because it makes my job twice as hard but I don't do any recordings of any of my previews. So I never listen back and I don't watch myself. So I only learn through how I feel in my body or what I think I remember afterwards. But the problem is it means all the shows have been entirely different and they've also all been entirely improvised. But the thing is they often tend to be the most fun, the best shows, because I have no idea fully, you're finding your keys in the dark and the audience have such a lovely time as opposed to the show that I'll then eventually do with Raven is going to be slick. It will be great and I'll be really proud of it. But once you suddenly see that route and you start plodding and pacing it out again and again, and it becomes muscle memory, it's a very different kettle of fish. So you, I mean, you mentioned so much about, um, about your own kind of process and it sounds like you're a performer who spends quite a lot of time in kind of your individual kind of contemplation and writing but also going to kind of training institutions has been important to you so you mentioned that from when you were little but also um, going to work with Goliath. Um, it's are there sort of relationships and collectives and, and, and being with others that have also been really important in in feeding your creative process? I think to be honest the community that you build from Goliath is amazing because everyone understands that training they understand what they experienced so for me, like, it's always interesting when people talk about writing comedy. I don't really write any material. I will gig and I'll improvise and then I'll note it down afterwards. But usually for me, I have to just book a rehearsal space and I just move in front of a mirror for about four hours, which is what I've been doing today. And on, you invite another clown or another friend or someone you trust. It has to, you know, to just play with you and just, you know, show off in front of. 
that's for me how I tend to make my work as opposed to I can't really do that sitting down in a cafe with another comic and just writing our jokes that doesn't work at all but the clowning community of which I'm not always sure I define myself as a clown I take I've got lots of clowning friends but it's more like Josh Glance, Damien Warren Smith, Ryan Lane, lots of alternative performers. I take, you know, I really immensely trust getting to show my work and playing with them. Interesting as well, you sort of, I think they're mentioning people from the clowning community rather than other stand-ups. Is that yeah. sort of been the case that your support network, certainly in terms of developing work, is more, more in that world? Yeah, like, I mean, there's also acts like Garrett Millerick, who is a straight stand-up, who I trust immensely. It's It really just depends, I think, on your... There's two strands to it. The people whose work is similar to yours who, in terms of how you generate it, and those who also have the same movement in their career progression, the same goals and aspects that you have. So you can... There's two different sides to it, like the friends you can talk to practically about structure and practically about how does this work? Does this thematically work? Does this engage with what I'm trying to currently do at this stage of my career? Does this make sense? And those you're like, I need to work out how to move from this scene to this scene and make it look silly or I'm not quite sure what to do with my body at this bit. There are two different sort of worlds of support I find and then also I think sometimes if you're too much in your own head doing a course is really great mm. like I work I've learned British sign language over lockdown so my friend Duffy who I make shows in BSL with now he's just fantastic in that we just play together because it means also I'm constantly being aware that it's not just my words that are the important thing so we just work in silence obviously and then I sign very badly <laughs> yeah so uh, i mean you've talked a lot about uh, the non-verbal aspects of your of your work and the thing that just really excited me when you were here doing the funny rabbit show was the kind of risks in a way of kind of going off stage and being able to confront people in the audience kind of getting very close to them and I would use the word looming over them really yeah uh, and I found that really in, but not in a kind of way that a kind of I don't know an aggressive male comedian might do it didn't feel like that it felt much that, like less confrontational in a way even though you were sort of you know there was a level of threat there I guess so I, 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 I mean, first of all do you recognize that description and then secondly how did that style evolve I mean I think there's this interesting thing I will always predominantly praise women and attack men but the thing is and it comes from quite a dark place but the truth is is like if we really had to fight if someone really took issue with me they would physically win I think that's the thing that you I'm very, I'm six foot and in heels I'm taller but I'm I'm thin and I'm very frail <laughs> and you know everything about me is odd I don't come across as being it's not like Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I'm, I look like I live. I don't, and I don't act as if I'm actively hating you or there's nothing really, really a menace. It's always clear there's like, because you say you're jumping in and out of characters. There's a sense of sight panic for sure. There's a frenetic like, oh, wh where's this going? But you know, there's the reason I think I can get away with it is you look at me and you know I would, there's no real threat there. Because if somebody found it problematic or did fight me, I would completely be the one 
undermined. And I just, I think there is something really, there's something still really provocative and subversive in a silly woman. Like it's still so, and and like people go, oh, I'm so fed up of comedians talking about their vaginas or talking about this and that. But actually, you see how people react when they're mentioned. It's still so subversive. Mm. One of the things I would maybe pick up is that that it's interesting because I I always had a. Th- I mean, it's different anyway because I'm a guy, right? I'm a man. But when when I used to do stand up as my main thing, I I always had the rule that never pick if you've got to talk to somebody in the audience and it's potentially going to be belittling to them. Always talk to a guy. Never never talk to a woman. And in fact, the only times I would ever pick a woman out of the audience is if the joke actually relied on it. And I was the one who was made to look an idiot at the end of it. Yeah. Because I think that's symbolic. It's, there's a politics of that sort of symbolic power, that play of power. And also, I think it'd be interesting. I don't know how much of a study there's been on the evolution of audiences. But traditionally speaking, who's the one paying for the tickets and booking the activities on the Friday night? Like the amount of times I've seen stand-up or comedy or club circuits where, and it's changing now because I think, again, earnings and it seems it seems archaic to say this, but I do think even as recently as like 10 or 20 years ago, there was still, there's still, it, again, it depends on what area you're in, but the men book the tickets in the club on the Friday and the girlfriend will be sat and the man will have his arm around her. And if he laughs, she laughs. Mm. And there's still the dominant audience members would always the people who controlled who would be coming would be the the men because and then you obviously get Hindus because that's the sort of socially recognized moment where women are allowed to be out as a big gaggle as a big group of women and now you know you wouldn't really you wouldn't question it if you saw a group of women just watching comedy together but I still think that has impacted how we approach different groups because the dominant, the one in power would often be the male audience members. Or like if you see the bloke who, who's brought his family with him, you take the mick out of him because he's the one who's bought the tickets. You don't take the mick out of the wife. You don't, you know. You're talking about handling um, men and women in your audience kind of differently. Would you go as far as to say there's two, you, when you're thinking about the show, when you're planning it, when you're performing, there's two different audiences that you've got running in London? Well, I mean, at the same time, that's also, it's it's complex. It's more complex now, especially with further conversations about gender and sex, because you've then got this other line to it of the moment you say that, and there's like, well, what do you think about trans or non-binary? What do you think? And then I think, to be honest, because the LGBT plus community have always sort of weirdly always been linked with the alternative scene in comedy, I think, or like the more subversive, it seems, because it's all about outsiders doing things that are above the norm obviously if we as we move further forward that's not going to be the case is it so you've got to be really i think on some context but it's then very much it's like what you imagine a traditional man and a traditional woman to be but that that's also still quite dated because i sometimes think of the stereotypes we make about you know like the stereotype about white men which i find i really don't like in the uk i find it really problematic especially like in the UK, when you look economically speaking, the most vulnerable people in society right now are young working class white men in regional areas who've got the highest suicide rate and are the most deprived. Um, so it's, it's always been, I'm, I mean, I'm always fascinated with that about 
because you go to different areas and also sometimes my comedy will really land in some areas and will absolutely flop in others. And it's not because I'm less funny or more funny in other areas, it's just due to access and introductions to different comedy forms. And because I think for a lot of people, my comedy probably looks like it comes from a place of privilege. Because again, I went to Golia, which is still associated with being quite privileged, even though I'd argue it's not because I'm an educator. Like I've done three degrees and gone to God and I was able to enter into the world of theatre. So there's loads of things at play. So it really depends on, I think it's not just men and women, it's like background, education, cultural capital, really. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. that Dick Gregory, the great African-American comedian, um, used to, you know, used to play in those sort of cool bohemian nightclubs and things. He used to ask for his glass of water or whatever to be brought on by a white waiter just as a way of, I don't know, demonstrating something about his right to be there um, at a time when, you know, the civil rights movement hadn't won yet you know and i think those 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 all those different forms of inequality are all at play in stand-up mm-hmm. and all, all there to be played with as well possibly absolutely i think as well with comedy the key thing is you're funny like obviously and i'm very much aware of my the only voice i have is my own i can raise issues that matter to me i can't speak on behalf of a group of people and i think there's probably there's often or I've noticed increasingly this idea to, you don't need to be a voice, you don't need to be a politician, and you don't also don't over egg the right, the value, you're a jester, that's what we are. You can inspire thoughts later on, like echoes of an idea for someone to think about later, but you're not there to lecture an audience. And I sometimes notice some audience, like, you know, what you're saying just then, that's just such a simple, such an effective choice. Mm. Very powerful. But then does that take away for, you know, does it, I, I didn't, I don't know any of his work, but how much of his, you know, it's like, do you have to say it? Can there be an action? Can there be a sound effect? Can there yeah. be something else that tells us? I say this to my students when I teach clowning. It's like sometimes rather than telling us something horrific that happened to you, if reliving that every day, lip syncing the perfect song or the right piece of movement to the right lighting design will tell the audience everything they need to know without sacrificing your own emotional well-being every day. If I can pick up on something in your own work um, about that, so you wrote in The Guardian recently about um, anger and about how your current work is sort of about I think um, a, a phrase uses words to the effect that it's channeling it rather than swallowing it could you say yeah. a bit about about the work you're doing and 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 how it relates to that kind of idea about anger so it's actually it's quite dark it's really it goes to a really it's quite scary I didn't realize it's been really hard to make very hard to make so I become a monster throughout the show that's the whole concept is I'm going to terrify you because Philippe would always say to me you're you're too desperate to be loved and we don't love you and when you're a bitch we love you so in this show I become this bitch this creature um and there's two there's two bits that are quite shocking but I think they were really funny so when I talk about because slowly through imagery you piece together what the story of the show is without me actually have and then I do it and it's like a proper sucker punch 
but at the beginning of the show because it's to do with sexual abuse like just so anyone listening can immediately get on board with what I'm talking about but and growing up and childhood but at the beginning I talk about being frightened and I do a dance to Footloose by Kevin Bacon and the running gag through the whole dance is I just look at men in the audience and I say stop sexualizing me I'm nine in this dance <laughs> and I just list loads of things that I'm like I love horse riding I'm nine <laughs> My favourite rabbit is called Rebecca. My hymen hasn't broken yet. and But I'm being really sexual in this dance, but then saying these really innocent, sweet things. And then at the end of the show, when I turn into this monster, I bring out this giant mallet, and it's to rage against the machine killing in the name of. And I turn to the audience and I say, you can sexualise me now, I'm 31. And I look like I'm... I look terrifying and I bring out all these vegetables to killing the name and I smash up all these black currants and blackberries and then I smear all pink and red on my head and I smear it all over my thighs and it's proper like war paint but then also you look at it and you're like it you suddenly realize it's it's blood from a physical trauma and so there's two like layers to it and then me going my hymen's broken i'm 31 and it's like a weird it's a horror like you laugh because it's incongruous but it's also really but it's really fun and cathartic the music rage against the machine killing in the name of the revenge of smashing up all this stuff and it also all looks like dicks so there's like loads of different really silly things at play but then there's also something really really fucking dark underneath it which is quite fun to play with because it's me, it's not me coming on stage and like, if I'd used real fake blood, it, it we go into a very different place. Do you, do you, so it's like, yeah, yeah. you disassociate it, but it's still there. What, what I think is really funny about that idea of the, the first stage where you're nine and you're telling them don't sexualize me whilst dancing or whatever it is, moving in a sexy way. What's really funny about that is that it's deliberately unfair on the audience. And so it's you sort of pranking them in a way in a really yeah. funny way that's quite challenging yeah i think it's just really funny because also at that point i do look i'm like wearing a see-through sheer black dress and i've got my tits out like and at the end and i'm like you can't sexualize me now i look like pennywise from it so it's like <laughs> the last possible time you'd want to yeah i think that that's sort of something that i've noticed running through that's there's quite a, a kind of motif in your work is to is to play with muck about with the idea of being sexy so you're a really I love sexy it so much performer. Yeah, well, t tell us more. Tell us, you're a really sexy performer, but also you're, you're really playing with what conventional ideas of sexy behaviour might be, I guess. So yeah. tell us more Tell us more about why and, and, and what the impact of it is. I think it's just, it's one thing Philippe would talk about, know what you look like, know what the audience see. And as much as my own body, just more for your own things can keep in place, I do know if I dress up well, I can look like an absolute like showstopper. And I've got legs up to here. You know, I'm tall and I'm thin and I've got cheekbones that, like, you could slice bread on. Slice bread? Slice butter? I don't know. I'm not saying, like, I'm the be-all, end-all, but, like, you've got to know what you're working with. And there's something really fun, especially when you're being so silly, to really play with the things that you would usually be sexualized for and subverse. And just playing, you know, playing with exactly what you look like. And it's a confidence thing because it means... I, it's also a very safe way of playing with sexuality because you're not actually, I'm not actually asking anyone to come on stage or flirt with me or do anything like that. It's purely for silliness sake. It's undermining the whole 
what you're taught as a young woman um, on how to present yourself and behave. Um, it's like with Chiff Chaff and I did this sort of sexy baby Marilyn Monroe voice and I wore this really beautiful dress, but it was completely ridiculous. And then I'd do a strip tease to Let's Get Physical by Olivia Newton-John. What's like getting a man to throw money over me? Like there's so many. It's just really awkward because the audience feel like they they really don't know. They really don't know how what to do. I mean, I also realise for anyone who then looks at a picture of me and is like, yeah, she's all right. It sounds like I've got really high sense of self-worth. But actually, I think that's fine. I don't mind them. Um, I think it's quite fun and quite refreshing to be like, though my partner just said to me, he's like, you've got to stop talking about how good looking you are to people. <laughs> you come across as a cunt. I'm like, but we've just got to talk about the truth and people talk about each other's struggles and my struggles this. But also, I mean, I've, you know, I've taught stand-up, you know, and, and, and what I've noticed, one thing I've noticed is that often female students will put down their looks, not recognising that actually people probably think they look great. And then there's a disconnect because they're sort of putting themselves down. It's a bit like when thin people put themselves down for being fat and they're, they're right next to somebody who perhaps is a bit larger. You know, there's, there's something there's something that just doesn't, that's uncomfortable, doesn't work about that. And it's also really nasty. Yeah. And it's like, you're oblivious. Yeah. People like you better when you're really honest about who you are. And I can be honest about myself till the cows come home. But yeah, I still remember this when I first started doing comedy because I didn't know how to be funny. But the reality, the tradition was, and I, you know, you sort of copy what you know works. Whereas the women would come on stage and you go, so I'm single. Or I find it really hard to get a boyfriend. I find it really difficult. Like, people don't fancy me. Here are the, all these awkward, funny encounters. And when I was 18, it made complete sense because I, like, no offense, I did not know how to dress for my body shape. I had puppy fat. I was like a complete 18 year old. And I used to wear face paint on stage and I used to cover my face in Vaseline and then dip it in a bowl of glitter. Like, I looked atrocious. You know, I was eight, I was kids, so you'd sort of laugh and go along with it. But then it stopped being funny, I think, when I was about, I'd come on stage and I wasn't doing a huge amount of that material, but I must have been about 22 and people weren't laughing. And someone was like, well, it just, nobody believes it now because you dress better, you know what your body shape is. You've also been in a really loving relationship for a while. You've gone through your slut phase. You, you know who you are. We don't quite believe that you can't go on these dates and you can't do this and you can't do that. And people just, and me like making jokes about what my body looks like, it rang really hollow. So I'm right, okay, well I have to change that. So I then did being Barbarella, which was about me try, learning to be sexy and trying to be sexy, which, made, which worked better with who I was and what I was trying to do. Yeah, and it's really refreshing to hear someone talk frankly about the the need to be to acknowledge the sort of positives in your presentation as well as as you say the the habit that we have of, of sort of putting ourselves down um, yeah like lucy lucy hopkins said this to me i was talking to her she i was like this was years ago i think when i was making swan um because swan i've got my legs out the whole way through and if you watch the next up recording i didn't i do a director's commentary through it the whole time the comedy me it just talks about how fit i look and how amazing my legs are which i think is really funny but one thing i said to lucy was when we were having this meeting she's a great clown i said i'm very insecure about my stomach which is true because when i was at school i got told i had hips that hitler could love 
I've got very wide hips and I've got like, you know, I naturally, where my weight goes is on my tummy. So if, if anyone who doesn't know what I look like listening to the podcast, I'm very, very tall. I've got very long. I constantly get asked by doctors if I've got Marfans, but I've got, and I've got a belly. Like I've just got a big belly. No matter what I do, I've always got a tummy. That's where all my weight goes. And I said, I'm just really insecure about that bit. And she was like, well, when you go on stage, you have to wear the tightest outfits to showcase that. You have to make people aware of the whole body, which I think is why it's really fun using nudity and using all that sort of stuff and wearing tight clothes. And I like playing with costume to reveal and not reveal and hide and showcase all those different. So the audience know that I'm aware, like you're not disguising or hiding anything. You can, you can either be fully apparent or you've got to disguise. You can't be either or. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, that's so that's so interesting. I think it's it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about the 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 separation you made between what you'll talk about and the sort of traditional way of approaching things to um, be self derogatory or whatever. But also, you you've spoken about being polyamorous on stage, and I yeah. wonder yeah. if that is that a different thing because that isn't so much cutting i guess i guess what i'm asking is what are the what are the kind of um what are the kind of challenges of that if any i guess because you're sort of talking about audiences expectations and actually i imagine for some audiences to discuss being polyamorous isn't just the opposite of what they expect it's kind of so their field they don't expect to hear someone talk about it at all yeah sometimes i throw that in and sometimes i don't it, it, it depends on the audience and the reaction i think i'm going to get um and also i mean especially the more i've gotten older the less i always think it, the, it's the audience's not business but i'm i think at the moment with that type of material i've got a show called talks dirty for an hour which is loads of filthy show stories but that stuff is still quite not personal i mean it's naturally personal because it's to do with you but i'm not sure i've got hugely enough gags on it and also the problem is is like once you say one thing about yourself it's very easy for people to just be like that's who you are and i wrote about polyamory back in 2017 that was five years ago i was 26 a huge amount of ha has happened between that i'm not necessarily certain i would stand by everything i wrote in that article or believed then so there's sometimes with certain things i'm always a bit apprehensive because if they're going to be referenced it's again that thing of being the face of something or being like the voice of something um like with lots of clowns being like oh you're the voice of clown at Goliath," and you're like well no i'm just one person making art yeah it's funny you mentioned polyamory because i haven't really thought about i can't remember when i last mentioned it on stage i sometimes mention it but it's also on those things that's so like yeah interesting yeah that is, <laughs> it's it's a right. philosophical thing in my mind yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think one of the things that, that to pick up from that is that because a good way it goes back to what you were saying before about not wanting to be wanting to be in a box and also that I think it's quite problematic really for comedians to be expected to be the spokesperson for whatever demographic they might fit into so you know there's a thing sometimes where people get put down for being a bad example of whatever it you know whatever identity they have yeah which seems unfair because it seems to me that stand-up is primarily an individualistic it obviously it relates to things about society and you know the relationships we have with other people but at the end of the day it's one person's point of view it's one person you're spending time with as an audience yeah i think it's also the thing it's it's that weird 
it's the fact that it's, we're also comedians are the perfect example of the free market because as much as it's like a community you're all competing effectively against each other you know demand you know what what do audiences want what do they get and naturally because of that if you were a product how do you sell that product you associate it with a subject you associate it with a type so what ends up naturally happening is you going well i'm just me i'm just one person but you're like well no because if you want to go into this business and we need to make sure that we've got equal representation for this this and this and this you are going to be our our white gay female comedian you are going to be our black disabled comedian and you do have to be then the representation representative for that because that's that's how you've marketed that's how we market you that is you as a product therefore take the opportunity you know, it's there's these weird mm. i mean like there is something interesting there people going oh i'm just an artist i'm just this guy going okay cool but also look at the industry and the business that you're in yeah i think I'm it's, important. it's right yeah, yeah, but, but I think all of those those forces are definitely kind of in play. And also it's interesting what you say about, or important what you say, about being able to to change, to, to sort of move on, have a different view on whatever it might be. And that um, people want you to stay static sometimes in, in some things more than others, or want some people yeah. to stay static than others. I think it's the thing as well about politics and comedy. Like, I think the association or the the... I think politics, in my opinion, like, obviously, it's, you're free to share what your political viewpoint is, of course, because you're on stage and naturally it becomes through. But there's some really interesting, I don't necessarily always like where the discourse goes on like the left and the right in comedy, because also it's so binary and it doesn't quite represent all the myriads. Because it's not really, everyone talks about it being a horseshoe, but it's not really, it's like a circle. The far left can almost touch the far right, like, you know, if you really go... I, there's something about it because you always see these sort of comments about someone being cancelled or whatnot. I was, yeah, something doesn't sit right with me on it, or not booking an act because they share the entirely same political viewpoint as you, whether it be or if they're a conservative, small C, big C, centrist, or far lefty or a little bit lefty. <coughs> So another thing that we wanted to ask you about was that you you teach as well as doing as well as performing comedy. So why go into teaching, you know, when you've got an established comedy career? Is 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 it a day job or is it you know is it something that you really want to do and you have a kind of mission? Two answers to it. First one's financial. I I'm very I'm proud of the work I've done in comedy, but financially it does not bring me anything. TV, what for the what I you know. Financially, I can't live off it, and I'm 31, and I want to eventually push children out of me. So I want to make myself financially stable. So during lockdown, and also I refused. I did not want to do TikTok. I don't want to do those sorts of things. I did some Zoom. It was I did some Twitch. It was shit for my mental health. I'm not doing it. I do live. So now as a teacher, I've got that financial security to do my live work in a very different way. It also means I don't have to gig all the time, which saves my energy and my health, which is really important. Also in the long term, I want to start up my own theatre clown school in the UK, probably about 10 years down the line. For me, I get very annoyed against the amount of people who charge a huge amount for teaching comedy or clown in the UK without any training or understanding or any of their own methodology. So for me doing the PGCE, 
I learned about Freya, I learned about Dorothy Heathcote, a lot about lots of different practitioners and theories of play, which means when I teach, I teach, I, you know, when I teach adults, I know, I feel like I know how to do it. So the long standing goal is I teach at secondary school, I become better. I hopefully go straight back into full time being able to tour and do comedy. And then when I'm a little bit ready, sat on my own theatre school. Amazing. That's an amazing vision. And I can imagine that that school will be amazing. Fingers just crossed. To use, just use the word amazing too many times in one sentence. <laughs> this is going back to the beginning, having just spoken about, you know, the glorious future. When you first started out doing stand-up, you said you had been a sort of fan of comedy. Um, did you have particular people who influences or who were sort of inspirations that you looked at and went oh yeah I want to do what they do. Dave Allen. I loved Eddie Izzard when I first watched him. I didn't really understand. I didn't necessarily find him funny but I liked him. I Same with I didn't un, I didn't laugh at the Mighty Boosh but I was obsessed with them. I thought they were just so cool and weird and I knew there was something funny that I couldn't understand yet and it was like I want to I still remember seeing Noel Fielding in like that red suit when they do the episode in the tundra and going, that is the world I want to go into. There was this etherealness to it. That sort of cool kids club. This must yeah. have been what, 2005, 2006. Yeah. And I mean, the really... panel shows were a big deal as well. And they suddenly felt like comedy was becoming this new type of rock, rock and roll for my generation. Yeah, yeah, I think it's, it's um, interesting as well that you cite sort of examples of comedy that's quite surreal, because my next question is about seeing your own experience reflected in the comedians that you saw. But given um, what you've already said about kind of um, the reality of your experience, you might think about it in really different ways. But did surreal comedy always just kind of talk to you, just always sort of speak to you as... as yeah, being... I think so. I, though I did really like, you know, I loved French and Saunders, but then they were still alternative. I remember thinking Joe Pasquale was really funny. Like, you know, the thing is, like, I had all the DVDs. Like, I had Lee Evans. I, I obsessively watched all these DVDs, but because I knew they were good, because it was, you know, I'd been told they were good. So who was I to question it? Like, I liked Ricky Gervais' Animals. I remember thinking that was really funny. I must have been about 12, so I was the perfect audience for it. But, like, <laughs> it's just... Yeah, it was a very dynamic array of stuff that I took inspiration from. Mm. But I hadn't seen much live comedy. Mm. So was there sort of a, a point in your life where you where you started going to a lot of live comedy? Like, could you say that was the that was the time when it wasn't DVDs of big names? It was me and in class. Yeah, I think when I went to, I went to Edinburgh Fringe when I was eighteen, and that was a big game changer. Mm. And I saw loads of cool people then. Mm. And that was really interesting. Yeah, that summer was quite game-changing. So what took you to the Edinburgh Fringe in that particular summer? Just you fancy going with your mates? I was doing, I was doing work experience for the Forest Fringe, mm -hmm. which worked at the Forest Cafe at that time, and they were run by Andy Field, I believe, and Deborah Pearson. So I was working for them for two weeks. And so I'd get to see loads of shows and then volunteer. I mean, it was totally my parents helped fund me go for two weeks because obviously volunteering, no money. But it seemed like a really cool opportunity and I'd never had an experience like that before. And it was just 
that I mean that that is so nice to think about a kind of moment where the the theatrical or comedy world just kind of opens up for you. That's really extraordinary. Yeah, one one of the things that people that's come up a lot in these conversations is people who were really helpful uh, in people's careers and getting established in things, and, p- and people who perhaps weren't so helpful. And those might be, you know, agents, managers, you know, TV commissioners, whatever. You don't have to mention names, but is, are the people that you found helpful, um, you know, in, in, in opening things up for you in terms of sort of professional opportunities and also people who perhaps not so helpful? It's, it's interesting. I can't, I'm trying to remember who was, it's an inter- I haven't really thought of it like that. Like there's obviously my sort of gang of friends who I've developed through comedy and we sort of support and hold it, help each other and give each other feedback. And I feel stronger with that since Golia, for sure. Because I never yeah. quite knew who my scene was. I never quite, you know, it's, I think like the thing about the Oxbridge groups is, and you do still see it, is like people who went to those universities really do group together or really support each other's work. And I didn't quite have that with my university times, big groups of people who went to, who did comedy from my uni. I, didn't, I never really felt like I was part of that gang. And there were definitely people who would sort of, I think, wanted to keep the cool comedy world to themselves. So didn't want to, didn't always want to lift you up. They sort of sometimes pulled the ladder up from underneath them. But then everyone's got their own issues and I don't really bear anyone any grudges because also, I think the key thing is remembering that comedy isn't meant to be cool. Anyone yeah. who thinks comedy's cool. Anyone who thinks who treats it like it's the cool club, I think it's always, yeah, be wary of that. And also, I don't really, you know, that thing, like, I wouldn't want to be a part of a member of a club that would let me in as a member. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be a part of a club that doesn't want me in it. Why would I want to, the cool places are where me and my mates are. So certain places, if I can't get booked for them, I don't really care. Yeah, like, I don't, it, yeah it doesn't really because all the cool places have been, I've had loads of cool experiences and they've always been with really cool people that I like and we're not cool, but yeah. I think they're cool, but I know we're not cool. So that's great. <laughs> How diverse do you think the comedy industry is? at the moment this is so interesting because again it depends what comedy circuit you're looking at like obviously you know when people talk about not another white lineup and obviously that is a concern an issue but at the same time you've got to look at the areas you've got to look at the economic science but you've got to look at i sometimes think obviously people in london forget that london is not representative of everywhere in the rest of the uk and like some promoters have made points of going we have tried to get a diverse side up and it's been really hard and wherever i live or etc etc i think some people sort of forget that there are different circuits like there's you know the whole deaf in just like theater the deaf theater circuit or deaf comedy circuit there's lots of different areas um i think disability is a big area that doesn't we always focus a lot on when we talk about diversity we often think about very specific 
categories and I think we need to be more open-minded about what that means in comedy because especially for accessibility I think is a big big problem but I think overall I think it's incredibly diverse especially in the UK when we think about how international we are and I think there's this big habit of slagging off the UK <laughs> um, and I sound quite controversial saying this but like there's loads of cool stuff to be proud of in terms of our creative industries and how brilliant it is and how much is being done and how much we try and support so i think you know obviously it's not i'm sure there are lots of people who say it's not perfect and it definitely isn't but then i still think we're doing increasingly better and better and better and better but then also it's easy you know people might not listen to what i say because i'm a a white cis able presenting person so you've got to sort of take what i say and go well that's what I see and experience, but I don't have the same lived experience with lots of other people. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned there that there'd be one thing that could change to make things even better, albeit that things are getting better, is that venues be more accessible to a range of needs. Is there anything else that you would point out and say, if, if that changed, that would make the comedy industry more diverse? Yeah, I think it would be make it much more healthy. I mean, how many acts and wheelchairs do you see? How many blind, how many deaf, regularly deaf, how many regular comedy nights do you go to have BSL interpreters? Like Ed Fridge doesn't do offer that. A lot of festivals mm. don't consider it. Yeah. And often if it's done, it's done as sort of like a marketing thing. So that's there, for me a big problem. Yeah. And are there any other things that you would say if that changed, it would be game changing? The problem is again, like with a free market, it's everyone would be like a union, but unions, you know, don't always work in comedy. People need to join equity. They need to be more aware of what's going on. I think it's just more active involvement in your industry mm -hmm. or in the creative industries. So Sophie, what's your takeaway from, from Elf's interview? I am so struck by Elf's love of subversion, but also, as she says, kind of knowing you've got to know what you're working with. So her really kind of acute understanding of what expectations she's trying to subvert, what she's got within herself and within her kind of creative toolkit to do that with. It's just so amazing to hear someone who makes such kind of interesting work uh, talk so articulately about why they do what they do. Also, to be blunt about it, knowing what you're working with, I mean, one of the things she talks about that is to do with, you know, how she looks and how the audience perceives how she looks. Women are socialised to hate the way they look and to constantly challenge it and to constantly feel bad about it. And that the idea of ever saying anything other than you look horrible is socially unacceptable. So it's actually really refreshing to hear somebody feeling empowered and talking about it in that much more honest way. I yeah, think. it's a really, really good principle. Yeah, I think I think for me, my takeaway would be that she's the most sort of self-consciously artistic of all the people we've interviewed in this first run. In that, she talks at such length with such enthusiasm and such detail about her creative choices and why she's made them, the thinking behind them, what she thinks the effect of those choices are. And that's super interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've just sort of mentioned in the uh, intro to this that she gets to refer to loads of sorts of theorists and it's really clear how they've kind of informed her thinking. Also, she refers to lots of training and she's, you know, she's very honest that it's a very privileged position to come from to have been able to engage in some training. But I think it's 
fascinating that um, often stand-up comedians we think just kind of spring out of the ether ready formed and there's no kind of uh, training or anything in that and I know Ollie you've done some work on uh, on the kind of training and what counts as training within stand-up yeah absolutely I mean obviously there's stand-up workshops and things like that and there have been for an awful long time uh, also of course you and I have both taught on undergraduate stand-up modules mm-hmm. um, and, the, and and I think the idea that there was never any training before that I think it was informal training you know comedians passing on knowledge and tips and tricks Max Miller the variety comedian for example a number of people have talked about how he took them aside after they shared a bill and went through their material with them and so on. That's training. It's not formal, but it's still training. But I think as well, of course, this is a very specific kind of training, which is clown training. Mm. There was a bit of a vogue within the comedy industry of people going, a certain kind of comedian going to Gollier. Mm. Um, and there's also a kind of reaction against that of, you know, <laughs> I don't like that. And it's really interesting to hear somebody just talking very positively about that kind of training. Yeah, it, it is great to hear someone talking positively about it because the way some people talk about that training, you wonder why anyone ever goes. <laughs> well, also interestingly, I mean, uh, Charmian talked about it in the first interview and she hadn't had a good experience. So obviously it's, it's different training suits different people. Mm. Um, but but of course, both of them as well, But both Charmian's interview and Elf's, they both talk about the connections between stand-up and clown. Clearly there are a lot of similarities, but also important differences. So I think that's really interesting interesting to hear about yeah and what a great way to end the series yeah absolutely now we're hoping to come back with more of these things Mm -hmm. in order to do that this has to be a hit podcast (laughs) i said podcast there not podcast which slightly spoiled the point but the point is do all the things that people say you know like and subscribe tell your friends five star reviews all that shenanigans that people say in podcasts and persuade funders that we need more money to pay more comedians to come and talk to us about their experiences and that way we'll make an amazing depository and we will get to the head of the podcast charts the podcast charts is something i've always wanted to be at the head of we're taking them by storm Thanks for listening to the Stand-Up Diversity Podcast. Produced at the University of Kent with support from the Participatory and Co-Produced Research Fund. Hosted by Oliver Double and Sophie Quark. Editing and music by Anki Dams. So you're telling me, a like and subscribe? Stand-Up Diversity Podcast.